Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the first MBT Fireside Chat of 2018. Fireside Chat number 40. All right, Tom, time for the questions. And the first one is on the origins of time. You see what I did there, right? Uh, Eric V writes, It would seem, Tom, that in order for time to begin, time needs to already exist, because something cannot begin without there being time to begin in. So to say that time at one point began now seems illogical. However, to say that time has never begun and has therefore always existed also seems illogical. So how can an infinite amount of time elapse for it to be now? Thus, both possibilities seem to be illogical and contradictory, and yet here we are. Can this mystery ever be solved? And if not, how is it possible that such a fundamental aspect of our otherwise logical existence is so illogical and contradictory? Time exists, yet there seems to be no logical way for it to exist. <laughs> yes, uh, that is a that is a uh, logical problem. There is no uh, um, easy way to jump out of that problem. Yes, you can't have if you if there was no time, then there would be no possibility for change. You see, is what he's saying. No time, no change. So if there was no time, then there would always be no time. So there is time. So then there couldn't have been a play, a time when there was no time. Because if there was ever no time, then there would always be no time. So since there is time, that leaves you with the conclusion that time must have always existed because otherwise it would have had a beginning and beginnings of time are impossible. So that's his, that's his point. It's one of these things that we have to assume. It's one of these things that just is. And I don't like it either. You know, when you, when science gets to the point that something just is, that's a point that you should be very, very skeptical of. But we, we get to these beginnings where we have to make an assumption. And the assumption of mine that I start out with, I have the two, that consciousness exists and that uh, um, evolution exists. My assumption of consciousness exists also brings in time because consciousness is a choice maker. Consciousness is about awareness, and it makes choices. That's its function. Okay, so you can't have a choice maker. You can't even have an awareness without time because you have an awareness now, and then you have a different awareness later. You see, without time, there's no, there's no growth. There's no evolution. There's really nothing that can ever build on itself to produce consciousness, the before and the after of the choice. So we have to just start there with an assumption, which is why I started my discussion with the, there's two assumptions here. You know, one of them is that consciousness exists and that brings in time exists and free will exists because you also can't have a consciousness without free will. So time, free will and consciousness all exist and come into my theory as an assumption. And it's very difficult to get past that assumption. And one of the ways that I talk about this in my book and in some of my lectures is I talk about the intestinal bacteria. I talk about how sometimes you're in a situation where you just can't know. In other words, it is, it is uh, illogical for you to know past a certain level. So I talk about these intestinal bacteria and 
they just are never going to be able to understand, even if they have brilliant scientists and can understand everything in that intestinal tract and make conjectures about what's outside of it, but they will never know about, you know, uh, the sunshine and, you know, growing things, uh, you know, farmers and tractors and refrigerators and all that sort of thing, which is very important to their, to what they do. That's where the food comes from. And what these bacteria in your system do is process that food. That's their reality. That's their purpose. Okay. For being there. And in as much as they try to unravel their existence and the reality that they live in, they get to a point where they just can't see any further because they are limited. And we are the same way. We're limited. We're consciousness. We can't get outside of the consciousness system. We can't look from outside the consciousness system to think what's beyond that or see what's beyond that or know. And we can't even ask the consciousness system what's beyond itself because it's that system. It can't really get out of itself either, you see. So we're kind of stuck here. And that's unfortunate because it leaves a very dissatisfying aftertaste to start off with just an assumption with no explanation, uh, particularly to a scientist. You know, I don't like that either. But it's one of those things, I think, philosophically that we just can't get a good objective answer to because we are limited in our understanding and in our ability and our perception. And there's some things we're just not going to know. And it's not because we haven't figured them out yet or we just aren't bright enough to figure it out. It's that they lie outside of our reality frame. And I don't mean just this little local, um, you know, reality frame we live in here called physical reality universe, but they're outside of our reality frame as consciousness. And at that case, at that point, we're done. We can't logically go out any further and we're stuck. So, yes, it's an interesting point that we have these things that we can't explain. And time is just one of them. Consciousness is another. And then the free will is another. You see, how did all that take place? So that's the time, the free will, the consciousness are all necessary. Uh, and I guess of those time, maybe the most fundamental of those three, the consciousness and free will. Um, uh, well, not necessarily so. They're all kind of just equal in as far as their logic each one has to exist for the other two to exist. You take w one of those away and uh, it doesn't work anymore. If you take free will away, you have consciousness that can't do anything. Consciousness that can't make choices. Consciousness that is aware, but inactive. Well, so I guess you could have that. It couldn't actually do anything, but just be aware. So it still has time, though. It, to be aware, it has to be aware of change, aware of things changing. Otherwise, if your environment and everything is exactly the same, what are you really aware of? Just that you exist, I guess, and everything always stays the same. That's really not much. I'm not even sure that meets the definition of awareness. It's uh, certainly meets the definition of existence, but... Uh, that's straining the definition of awareness. And if you don't have time, you can't have any of those things. 
So it's, it, uh, time is a very fundamental thing. It's, it's one of those things that is, that is at the very base, at the very root of everything else. And we don't know exactly where it started or where it comes from. And we don't know exactly where consciousness comes from, although we can do some conjecture, but conjecture isn't knowing. Conjecture is just making up a story that sounds plausible. And even that story has a, and then a miracle occurred, you know, dot, dot, dot. It has this, uh, this thing where you have to say, eh, I have no idea how that happened, but it must have because here we are. And so we get these to this point where we just don't know. And I think it's probably because we just can't know. It's not a failure on our part. It's just a limitation on our part. But a very good question. Thank you, Tom. We're going to now go to Amber. Amber has a question for you about right brain advice. Amber, it's all yours. Thank you. So I'm just going to read my question. Um, you talk about how it's easier to connect or tune in with people that we know. And I, I find that to be true like with my husband, my identical twin and my family and things. But I, I'm often made aware that I seem to tune in easily to people around me, regardless of how well I really know them. Usually there's like a, a link of familiarity that makes it easy. Um, so this can be people that I work with any group, family, friends, neighbors. Um, so, and it, it just leaks into uh, my thoughts, my dreams. Like it, it could be their thoughts, their experiences, as simple as maybe a discussion that they have, um, future events that are going to happen if they're in distress. Um, when I'm made aware of it, it's so specific that it minimizes doubt. So it's it's in a way that I can't really deny it where I'm like, okay, I know where that, that came from. So I can only guess that it's happening more than I realize. Um, so you mentioned how right brain people have to deal with this. I think I'm more of a right brain person. And I'm wondering what us right brain people can do if we realize we are getting information from people, how we can deal with it better, how we can turn our connection off. What can we do better to discern what's ours and what's not? Um, you talk about tools for distance healing. What are some uh, tools for turning off information from other sources? Okay. Yeah, there are ways you can turn that connection off and turn it back on again. And you use your intent to do that. Um, and again, the intent needs to be at the being level. So it's not, a, it's not like making a wish. Obviously, you've probably already tried that and that doesn't work. Uh, you have to use your intent at a being level to close off any conversation or any link or any data stream that you're getting that you really don't want. You don't need it that time. And then you can turn it back on when you do want, when you are connected to a person and you can turn on that link just individually to that, you know, to that person. Uh, or you can keep everybody kind of at the background such that you have this background information going on, but it doesn't jump into the foreground, which is usually where the problem starts empaths uh, get along fine until all this information just starts crowding in the, in the front, in the foreground of their minds. And then it's hard to separate. It's hard to sift out. It's a, it gets in the way of their, of their own life and their own thoughts. And pretty soon it's, it's not even easy to tell your thoughts from stray thoughts that come through. And 
that's where the problem lies. So you may you may try working from a meditation state, get into a good meditation state, and stop all the connections. So everything's gone there with your intent. It's just again, it's a point conscious state. You floating alone in the void without any thoughts or anybody else's thoughts in your head. And hold that state for a while. Get used to what that feels like. And then target a particular set of thoughts, which would probably first be your own, and let those be clear in your mind and nothing else. And then turn your attention to a single individual, maybe your twin sister, and pick up some of what's going on there and then turn it off again and then turn it on and then turn it off. And by doing these things one at a time, slowly like that, from a meditation state, you'll start developing the skills for turning off the things that you're not wanting or keeping them in the background so that as soon as you turn your attention to them, they pop up to the foreground and there they are. But as soon as you look, turn your attention away from them, they, they sink away again. You know, they go back into the background to where they don't bother you. You can just ignore it. Sort of like you ignore, uh, you know, the music in an elevator. <laughs> it's, it's just stuff in the background that you don't pay any attention to. So, that tends to be the way I work it. I keep everything in the background and I, when I move my intent to it, it pops into the foreground and I have it there. And then when I want to move my intent someplace else, it pops back into the background. So you can do that with some practice. It's uh, very disconcerting to have everybody's thoughts running around in your mind up in the foreground all the time. It's very confusing. So uh, start from the meditation state, the point consciousness state, and start working from there to eliminate everything. Then start letting certain things in, the easier things, the loud, you know, the things that are more obvious, like your sister, and then let in maybe one more and, ten, and not your sister, and do them one at a time. And then maybe you can do two. And sometimes you can juggle three or four if you can keep that many. Uh, you know, lines of communication going in your mind without confusing yourself. But in the beginning, I'd suggest you just do one besides yourself. There's you and you can focus on one other that you want to get information from or impart information to. But then when you're when you are no longer interested in, in receiving or sending to that person, you let them drop into the background and they're just not there anymore. And you can pick them up anytime you want with your intent. So empaths have kind of several problems. And one problem is they're overwhelmed with all the stuff they get, and they really don't want all of that all the time. But in another way, they're afraid of letting it go. They would never, it wouldn't come back. If they let it go, it would be gone, and they wouldn't be able to to uh, access it anymore. And for that reason, they're a little afraid to let it go because they don't want to lose it. It's a nice thing to have as well. So you have to get the courage to just let it go and it will come back and it'll come back on demand. As soon as your intention is there, there it is. So let go of any fear you may have of losing this gift. You won't lose the gift. You'll just be able to control it to the point that it's, it's a, it's a wonderful tool and not a, a frustrating tool. Thank you, Tom. I, I want to, I have like, if I can add just a little something to my question about telepathic communication, you talk about how 
It's usually symbolic images, which I experience that, but I have heard my husband, as far as like physical people, I, I've heard my husband speak to me, but he was in a urgent state. You know, he was locked out and had to go to the bathroom. <laughs> so um, that's, I, I heard him uh, say my nickname. And I mean, it's not like I thought I heard it. I screamed. I, I It was like, what what's happening? <laughs> and, um, I'm just wondering if, if everybody, you know, were to practice it, could it get to where the data comes through, where it is more specific like that? Or is it just because the emotions were so intense that the data came through that way? Or is it the way I interpreted it, if that makes sense? Yeah, it depends on, on who's speaking and it depends on the context of the message. Uh, yes, I get it both ways. Uh, sometimes I get things that are just listening to somebody talk. And between Pamela and I, that happens a lot. You know, I will hear her thinking, and I'm thinking that she's actually talking. But then when I respond to her, she's saying, how did you know I was thinking about that? And I didn't even know that I was picking up on her thoughts. I was listening to her talk to me, except she just wasn't saying anything. She was just thinking. So. Yes, you can get that kind of very literal, you know, you just hear the speech and you can have even conversations that way. If you're with another person who also does that, Pamela and I do that sometimes too, where I will hear her thinking, she will hear me thinking of her thinking, you know, and we'll actually can have little, little things we'll send back and forth that are really just telepathic, but telepathic in a, in a, uh, in a way that's just like normal speech. But if you're if what you're trying to to communicate is a is a much longer, a bigger thing, okay? You want to tell somebody uh, about uh, how you feel about something or other. It's a more complex issue, not just oh, I'm I'm stressed. You may get that I'm stressed, you know, very literally. But if you if it's a more complex thing you're trying to talk about, that will almost always come in terms of symbols and images in terms of metaphors. Uh, if you're communicating with some other being and finding out about the nature of the larger consciousness system and how things work and why they work that way, what you're going to get is metaphors. You're not going to get strings of words very often. But if there is just a real simple little thing that a string of words does better than anything else, you get string of words even there sometimes. I'll get little strings of words just out of the non-physical that maybe is a, you know, a 10 word sentence short, but I hardly ever get something out of the non-physical. That's like, uh, you know, reading the page of a book, something that goes on for, you know, five or 10 minutes and it's all, it's all in speech. That hardly ever happens. You get little phrases, little three and four words, five words. That happens a lot. But if it gets more complex to where it would take a paragraph or two to, to express it, then's when you tend to get metaphors and not linear linear words. There are exceptions to that. There are sometimes people who communicate with other people telepathically, and it's just like being on the telephone. They can communicate to these non-physical entities uh, um, in speech. I guess that's not really a hard thing to do. It's just if that's way, the way you set it up, then you can get, you can get words. 
the way that mostly works, or let's say a, a medium talking to an individual, they're not really often getting the words that they say to you are often not really literally the words that they hear. Most of the time, they're getting the metaphors and the pictures and that sort of thing, and then they're turning that into words. So it's it's pretty rare to get a complex thing in words alone. But we turn things into words pretty pretty readily. We make our interpretations. Sometimes we don't even know the difference. Does that help, Amber? Yeah, that does help. I have, you know, I I worked at a metaphysical shop at one point, and I thought I thought I would find a bunch of people working on their ego, but I I didn't, and it was a strange place to be. And you know, I had a manager say, "I I don't even think you know you're doing it," kind of like um, you had mentioned there. And you know, I am you know full of fear and ego, so most of the time I can't see what's up or down, and um, so it does help. And I will meditate. I do have. Um, post MBT, so this was, you know, several, um, you know, years ago when I first stumbled upon you on YouTube, um, I did meditate using like gateway, but I, I only had, uh, to wave 10 and I had never heard of, um, you know, TMI before I came across your videos, but anyway, I started to get the spontaneous music and, and just, you know, things I could tell that things were happening. And I was like, oh, what, what's this? And then it, it started to feel like um, there was a presence that gathered around because I had asked for help. And then I started reading about other people's experiences and how they would get like entities that smack them in the face and stuff. So I was like, oh, okay, well, I would have ordered me up a nice hug, but maybe they're there and they're going to smack me in the face. So I'll just deal, maybe I should deal with this in the dream reality. So I kind of, when I meditate now, I think I'm like, yeah, I'm going to meditate. But at the being level, I'm like, no, relax and go to sleep because, <laughs> because it's a little scary. I don't want, I don't want to be hit in the face. <laughs> so, um, so there is a little bit of fear there, I think. And I, I tend to set myself up where I'm like, okay, let me handle this in, the dream reality and not meditation, but I, I will go back to meditation and, and work on that. Thank you, Tom. Yeah. In the, in the meditation format, you have more control. It's more you learning to deal with things there in the, in the dream you're, you're removed a little bit from, from the process, which is why you like that better. It kind of gets you out of, out of the, the middle of the process. But if you really want to learn how to, turn it on and off at will, then you probably have to start through the meditation process. And yes, try to let go of that fear. There's nothing out there that's going to hurt you. The worst thing that you will run into is your own fear. Okay, sorry. Uh, Adrian, I believe you have the next couple of questions for Tom. Um, let me start with my first question. My first question is regarding to psychedelic drugs, especially to DMT. I'm not sure if you have any experience or knowledge um, about the substance. Many people or many users... I've read the book. You, yeah, I, I read the book yep. too. And um, yeah, I'm quite fascinated about this substance. I mean, we have all um, DMT in our bodies. That's quite strange. And I have tried DMT myself, I confess. And um, my question to you is, because you are the one and only guy 
um, that I think of that could possibly answer my question. Um, what, or let me put it that way, um, what is this about these entities and about these um, different worlds and different um, states of minds that we have simultaneously to our normal, ordinary world? What is this and how does this fit into your MBT, if I can ask you this way and if that makes any sense to you? Let me add a, a little information, maybe. I mean, I have read the book, too, as I said before, but I didn't get that much information out of the book, to be honest. I got my information from an author, which um, his name is um, Terence McKenna. I'm sure you have heard about him, or at least you have seen a video or something, because he is um, widely known in the United States. And uh, he has spoken a lot about DMT, and uh, I was really influenced and quite impressed by what he said, and that was my main source um, where I did get my information from. And maybe you could kind of put this together into your um, understanding of or your perception of um, your MBT and the normal reality and these entities and aliens that we have in these altered states of minds and I would really like to know what you think about all that crazy stuff. <laughs> okay. When you take DMT or other drugs, DMT is not the only one. There are other drugs that uh, will do a, a similar uh, sort of thing. Uh, ayahuasca seems to be a very popular one now that uh, does a similar, has a similar kind of uh, a reaction. What it does is it forcibly removes you from connecting to the PMR data stream. Okay. Normally, your reality is defined by the data you get from the PMR data stream. When you take these drugs, you get pulled away from that data stream. That You don't process that data stream anymore. So you just let that go. And you find yourself in any number of other reality frames. If you're taking the ayahuasca, you find yourself in terms of a, a reality frame that is sort of defined by the what use over the year, years by ayahuasca. So you, you find yourself in that kind of a, of a reality frame. And with DMT, uh, you find yourself in somewhat different, but they're, very, they're similar, but they're, they're different uh, as far as the constraints. And, and those constraints come with not so much the drug, but with the understanding and the um, experience of the people that have been using those drugs, particularly the people that are the, are the source and, and have been using them for a very long time. So you, you, you kind of, in a way you're limited by the um, group consciousness that is tied to the drugs and the drug users. And you tend to have the things like what you've read about and right. What the people tell you about when, when they are introducing you to this. But in general, you end up in another reality frame or one of several. And then you get to experience those frames. And yes, these are real reality frames. It's not like this is just a, a hallucin, a, you know, hallucination that's going on inside your brain. It, this is teleporting you or taking you to a different reality. And depending on what your intent is, you will see and hear and experience different things. If your intent is just, wow, gee whiz, look at this, then what you'll mainly see is a lot of lights and colors and patterns and that sort of thing. 
if you have a particular intent to understand certain kinds of information, then you'll get that. So a lot of it, of what you experience under the influence of these drugs has to do with your intention. Uh, many people just get the lights and the, and the patterns and so on and don't get much else because they don't really come with much intention. They're just after a, an experience. So it depends on what you bring to it, mostly. Um, a similar thing happens to people who uh, go out of body. When they finally get out of body and they finally give up just floating around in their room watching themselves lie in bed, they go into a, another reality state. And when they do, what they get has a lot to do with what they bring to it, with what they're thinking. Okay, but now they're not thinking lots of bright colors and lights and, you know, a kaleidoscope and patterns and that sort of thing, because that's not the general group think around the out-of-body process. It's, it's a um, individual kind of thing. Everybody gets their own unique experience that's a reflection of their own unique being in person and their own unique intents, their own unique fears, and so on, and their own unique limitations. So what is it? Well, it's just a way of, it's another way of letting go of physical reality data stream and getting a different data stream, being aware within a different virtual reality. So it's a similar thing to what will happen if you learned how to do this on your own. The big difference between them is, is that if you take a drug, it just happens to you. And when the drug wears off, it stops happening to you. It's a process that you have very little control over, and one in which you tend to just are along for the ride. At least that's the way it is with most of the users. Um, that doesn't teach you the kind of skills that you need to learn to interpret and make sense of the things you get. It doesn't develop the skills for getting there and getting back on your own. It doesn't uh, help you understand the whys and the hows of this larger consciousness system. It just gives you an experience. And you can get better if you do it often. You get better at, at uh, dealing with that experience. But it doesn't give you the, the basis for understanding what you're experiencing in a, to a depth of which you can start to separate what's meaningful from what's not, from what's valuable and what's not. Because all the information you get in these states isn't necessarily good information. Sometimes the information you get in these states is wrong. It just doesn't work that way. You get information that is that is uh, um, dysfunctional sometimes. And if you haven't got a good grip of what's going on and why you might get information like that, you tend to swallow everything hook, line, and sinker, you know, no matter what. And you become, you know, an easy mark, if you will, in that information for being given uh, misinformation. So it it isn't a fake reality. It isn't something that's just uh, going on inside your head and nothing else. You are in a real alternate reality frame. And you are getting real information there. The problem is it's mostly out of your control and it's mostly just happening to you and you don't have the skills to be particularly uh, careful about what you what you take away and what you let 
let's stay. So that's kind of the overall thing. It uh, It's a real experience. It just isn't as useful and can be uh, addictive in the sense, you know, that you like it, you enjoy it, it gets you out of this reality, it gets you into another, uh, and you want to do that, so you tend to do it more. And the more you do it, really the the less patience you have with doing it the, the hard way, which is learning how to do it on your own without the use of any drugs. You, you get frustrated by that path because that takes a lot of time and effort to get there. This other path is easy. All you do is swallow and maybe get sick and throw up a little bit and, you know, have to deal with the after effects. But it seems like it's an easier path. And the more you get used to doing something that's easy, the less tolerance you have for doing something that's more difficult. Um, that's, you know, people who have never learned to actually do math, except by punching buttons on a calculator, they have little patience for doing math by hand. And if they have a, even a not that hard a math problem to do it by hand, they'll just refuse to do it. They'll say, no, no, I'll wait till I get to my calculator. And it's just like that's in the too hard to do branch. It's in the, uh, you know, it's not something I want. So you get to the point where you can't really function except the easy way. And that's the problem with the drugs. You tend to get stuck in this, this, the easy way and it's not well defined. You don't learn as much because you're not really uh, in control. It's not your intent that's making the action happen and your intent that's taking you where you want to go. It's the drug that's just putting you someplace and now you get to experience it, but it's, you're not in control control of it very much so that's kind of the upsides the downsides what you get and what you don't get uh, as far as doing the drugs um, sometimes people get a lot out of them because it shows them that the reality is much bigger than the physical and that's a good thing sometimes people uh, get to the point where they use them so often that they actually now it's more difficult for them to learn how to do it on their own and now they've kind of trapped themselves into a mode of doing it the easy way and it makes it, and it's very hard for them to do anything else. That's kind of the down, the downside. Of course, the other downside is in a lot of cultures, they're illegal and that gives you another, uh, another issue to have to deal with that's on the downside. So I don't know if that helps or not, but, um, yeah, they're real experiences. All right. Uh, how useful are they is the, is the big question to ask. Just having an experience is not going to help you grow up. You don't grow up from an experience. You grow up from what you take away from the experience, how that experience helps you become love, how that experience helps you understand things. That's the value of it. But you can have a big gee whiz, oh, wow experience by riding a roller coaster, you know, by going, you know, doing the flips. And that roller coaster can be a, a wow experience, but you don't learn a whole lot with it. Other than that you survive and think it's fun and you want to do it again, you don't learn a whole lot from it. So that's the thing. If you were to take drugs and learn a lot from it in a consistent way that keeps building, one builds on the next, builds on the next, so your knowledge keeps growing and growing and your, your abilities keep growing and growing and you're, you, get, you lose fear and so on, then they would be a good thing. But we don't tend to have our drug use doesn't tend to be in that kind of a 
of a setting or in that way where it tends to be a cumulative learning. It tends to be more a whole bunch of one-offs experiences. And that's kind of the downside to it. So I don't know. Maybe that's that's helped a little bit. It Yes, it's real. Uh, yes, the experiences are real. Yes, that's a real reality you're you're in, not this one. But so what? You know what? It depends on what you get out of it. What's the use? If you find it really useful, then pursue it. If you find it that it's limiting, then walk away. So I'd say it's an individual thing. My last question is uh, completely different. It's about uh, coincidences. And uh, for instance, I experienced um, this myself. I just, out of nothing, I told my friend, like, if I was a rich guy, I would, a really rich guy, I would uh, build a ship like the Titanic, right? And just from the outside, it should completely look the same way like the uh, real one, like the old one. And from the inside, I would use uh, new technology, right? Mm -hmm. The next day, I saw that in media that a guy from Australia wants to do that exactly, Okay, this is just one of my coincidences that happen from time to time to me, that occur from time to time. So um, my question is this, what do these uh, coincidences want to tell us or to tell me and why do these things happen? For instance, another uh, example would be you haven't seen uh, someone for maybe 10 years or so and then you spontaneously think of this guy and An hour later, you see him in the mall passing by, you know. That would be something that most of us um, in some ways experience, right? Sure. And uh, my question would be, why do these things, um, I mean, what are these things about and what do they want to tell us especially? I would like to know that. Is this like, okay. am I on the right track when I, when I see these things or what do they want to tell us? Uh, what's going on there for the very fundamental is that we're consciousness and all consciousness is netted. So we do connect to each other. When we think about each other, then the possibility that connection goes up. So when we uh, are going to possibly meet someone, then we get that message that they're going to be close. Suddenly we think about that person we haven't seen in 10 years and then there they are. Yes, that happens to me regularly at the, uh, It happens, you know, I know that when people that, that I'm aware of, uh, you know, the, the children of friends of mine, you know, when they have a problem or they get married or they're about to have a baby or other kinds of things, I generally get the message before somebody uh, sends me a card or calls me on the telephone. It just, these things just come. I think about them and the pictures and the things start to come in and, and I'm open for that sort of thing, but that's common. It's not just you and me, but thousands and thousands of thousands of people have these experiences. The thing we're getting is one, all, ten, all consciousness is connected. All those consciousnesses that are intertwined in some way, I hate to use the word entangled because that's got a, a physics meaning, but all the kinds are kind of entangled with each other in some way, like they all work at the same company or they're all part of the same country or they're all part of the same club. Those kinds of of entanglements of consciousness that have something common like that, that's called group mind, where they tend to influence each other to become more like the group, like the average group. We see that with mobs. We see that in uh, in music 
you know, we have with these big music festivals and there'll be 200,000 people and they're all listening to the same band, you know, playing. And it kind of gets into a, a mass mind thing in those situations as well. It happens in football games. You get a lot of people doing the same thing and you'll get, they'll start to connect in their feelings, in their emotions at their being level. They'll start to connect. Sometimes I think the larger conscious system does that to us, kind of gives us these little pieces of information, like you're going to see a friend, just to help wake us up, just to help give us some data that shows us that reality isn't just pin, you know, just so, uh, um, as it's, it's not the way it's described by the materialist. It's bigger than that. There's another, other dimensions to it. Otherwise, we wouldn't know that we were going to run into this this friend because eventually you do. You haven't thought about it, but somebody in 10 years and suddenly you're thinking about them. I start looking around for them because I figure I'm going to get a phone call. You know, they're going to show up in my life and I start watching for them because I know very soon they're going to come by. Otherwise, I wouldn't have got that thought. So you get to depend on it after a while. You can you can kind of operate on that. I think people get these to help them understand reality is much more nuanced and has more dimensions to it than just the three spatial dimensions that we understand in our physical reality. So that's part of it. Just a wake-up call. Just a call saying, yeah, reality is strange. But the, the function of it is just conscious to consciousness. When uh, the two, you and your friend who haven't seen each other for 10 years, when you get within vision and you're going to run into each other, then the connection starts to get stronger. And pretty soon that person pops into your mind just because you know each other. You were acquainted. You see, just because you're acquainted with all those people you work with at your company, you start to think more like them, too. You start to take on some of their characteristics. Just because you know now you're in that you're in that that you're in that group and you keep getting bombarded with that kind of think all the time group think out of that group. So it's it's the nature of consciousness and the connections that we have is why that happens, and it happen if it happens for a purpose, it's because the consciousness system wants us to realize that that reality is stranger than we think it is and support us. And our knowledge of that, once we know that, we get these things because it supports us. And it says, oh, yeah, you know, uh, people think I'm crazy, but I'm not crazy. You know, I have all this data in my own experience that shows me that reality is strange. See, so it's it's just the way it is being a consciousness. You're connected to everybody. And those connections then actually kind of materialize when it's people you know, people you've met before. Things that aren't brand new because you've had a connection there. That means that, 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 uh, connect that I keep saying connection, but that, that kind of data stream between you and them has already been established. And then when you get close to meeting, it kind of opens up because it's already been established. It's just the nature of consciousness is why that happens. And it happens to lots and lots of people because we're consciousness, not bodies. Thank you very much. Um, Christian has the next question, I guess. Thank you so far, Tom. Um, hi, Tom. Uh, my question hi, is, 
related um, also to Adrian's uh, comments about coincidence. And uh, I had not really planned to be here today. Um, I just wanted to meet Oliver for, for another reason, but he was not there. So I browsed the website and then I saw Fireside Chat just clicked it. And then I saw, oh, right now there's a meeting starting. So maybe I should join. And that's the reason why I'm here today. So nothing prepared, but it's exactly uh, what Adrian also said. Um, there are such so many coincidences and the, it happens permanently almost to me for almost every day such strange things happen which is really <laughs> funny because it's so unrealistically that this constellation could appear yeah and yes that's, yeah. that's all the time even if that's um, maybe also bad things like a flat tire or such things but it's 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 really <laughs> it's positive for me because it's it's like a big hug from from the LCS saying, okay, I'm here, I'm taking care, and it's just a, a lesson. And, yeah, that's, that's uh, I'm feeling like taking care. Or maybe that's, I hope that's the right approach. <laughs> and also other things happened since um, I have, last time, my microphone was not working, so <laughs> I couldn't say thank you. So that's uh, my chance now to say thank you, Tom. <laughs> Well, for everything what happened in my life, because it's it's so different now with with MBT, and so many miracles happened. Even though I didn't really plan to change many things, but almost everything changed in every aspect: in job, in family, in a relationship. Everything changed. Even my mother, who had this depression for thirty-five years, and I couldn't help her. Now, since a year, yeah. She's a happy person and I don't know why. I haven't done anything, but it just happened. It's just out of the blue. Mm-hmm. I don't know why, but it's for me, for me, it's, it's a miracle. I didn't achieve yeah. it 35 years and now I stopped trying to, to help her. And now she, she is completely healed. Yeah. So such yeah. <laughs> that's the way it works like that, uh, Christian. Uh, once you stop trying to control the world, and your environment to be the way you want it, it starts to, um, you start to learn that you don't need to control. Matter of fact, it was your controlling it that was creating all the problem. Once you just kind of let it be how it is, it tends to get a lot better. Uh, and you, of course, happen the same way. What they call that synchronicities, when things just happen because they happen. And I have found that when you give up control and realize that, I don't really control anything here. You know, the only thing I control is myself. Everything else is just happens the way it happens. And when you get to that point that you're willing to just do the best you can, make the best choices you can with whatever, you know, lays in front of you, you find out that everything you need, everything that's really important just happens without you doing anything, you know, and yet you tried and tried and tried for years to get these kinds of things to get in line and to, you know, get your boss to realize that you're doing really good work and all these things you've been working on and working on and it never seemed to happen. When you give them all up, they start to happen. And that's because that trying and trying that you do is also attached to fear because you want these things to change. And, that fear helps keep them just the way they are. 
And when you let go of that fear and let go of that control, it's amazing how things just happen. You know, you talked about a flat tire. I can remember uh, soon after uh, I started working um, on what we call around here, the arsenal. There's a lot of government business there. I was driving out from work. It was very cold. I was dressed in a three-piece suit because I had meetings that go, you know, tie, suit, vest, the whole thing. And my car gets a flat tire. And I go, oh, no, you know, I all dressed up in these nice clothes. I don't want to change a tire because you get greasy and dirty when you change tires. And I hadn't been out of my car for more than 15 seconds when another car pulls in behind me. The guy gets out of the car, comes over and changes my tire for me. When he's completely done changing the tire, you know, uh, you know, we, we chat for a minute or two. I thank him and uh, I get in my car and he gets in his and we both drive off. You know, that stuff just happens and it happens to me all the time. Whatever you need just pops out of the reality and there it is and it does what it is you need it to do. Even for things as mundane as a flat tire. So yeah, my life is like that and I'm like you. It happens all day long. Matter of fact, it's been happening all day for so many years that it's not even strange anymore. It's just the way life works. Things just happen. And uh, yeah, it's a good place to be in. Yeah, it's it's a kind of fun, really. <laughs> and even if there is a very difficult situation and it looks sometimes like scripted for me because it, just impossible that's just mm -hmm. a horrific situation how how do i get out of this <laughs> i have no idea no clue and right. just, just go on and everything works out just fine without a problem <laughs> just yeah. a miracle yeah and and that's really um yeah a fun approach of life so <laughs> just yeah i mean i'm i'm learning a lot but Maybe as my second question, but I've also a try and error approach. Um, I make two steps forward and one step backward. So, and I think, is the step backward really necessary? I mean, it seems like a waste of time or <laughs> making the wrong decision. <laughs> but um, maybe that's just, I don't know, the way I'm learning. But um, it's, it's not, maybe I take some detours. Yeah. But um, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's, yeah, it's okay. The step backward is is all right. So often that step backward will help you get perspective. Will help you see uh you know the way things are more clearly. So there's value to to you know to a little bit of backwardness sometimes will will help you uh go forwards more afterwards. But yes, yeah. what I tell people, I tell the people all the time. I said, "Well, you just, you know, If you let go and just try to make the best choices you can and so on, that life will get good and your relationships will get better and, you know, all this wonderful stuff will just happen. And I just can tell the whole crowd out there is going, yeah, 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 right. You know, I, I get my, you know, I get rid of my fear and suddenly the whole world changes and, you know, to make me happy. And nobody believes that it actually works like that, but it does. It really does work that way. Once you get rid of your fear, life starts to get fun. And it's, it just works. And like you say, sure, there's hard times. Sometimes you, things happen that are, how am I going to get through this? But you find out that you just kind of get through it. It all, 
oh, here's this mountain that's in front of me. How am I going to get over it? And you find out that the mountain just kind of pulls apart in the middle and leaves a little gap through it. And you walk through it and everything works fine. And then it closes up behind you when you're on the other side. And things just work out that way. And it uh, it does work like that. It's a hard sell, though, to convince anybody else that it does work that way. But sure enough, when you get rid of that fear, that's the way it works. And your mother gets better. You know, all your relationships get better. And it's a it's a very interesting path. Sometimes you still have hardships because you're dealing with a lot of other people, you see, and you have to deal with those people. Sometimes people are hard to deal with, Uh, but that's all right. You know, it comes, it goes and you're okay with it. Even the even the even when it hurts, even when it gives you a little pain now and then that's okay. It's part of the process and it's not really seen as a negative thing. It's seen as a part of life from which you learn. So it. It's a different way to live. I wish more people uh, would get there and tell other people about it because uh, when you're the only one and you're telling people about it and everybody's nodding their head, you know, going like this and, you know, you know that it's, it's, uh, it's not too credible, but so I'm glad you came on. I'm glad you, you know, you you talked, came today, just happened to be here, you know, when you were here. For coincidence. (laughs) I mean, one thing I also realized is because I was always very determined uh, just to go forward and I was afraid to make um, decisions and, uh, and afraid to make mistakes. And that's why I often didn't do anything. Yeah? Now I'm more like, okay, I don't know everything. I don't know what the, the right decision is, but I just take the decision and maybe it's wrong. Okay. <laughs> but just, just move ahead and, and right. learn from it. And, and that's fun. <laughs> Yeah, in either so. case, you'll learn something. Whether it was the right one or the wrong one, you're going to end up being better for either one. So it's just another alternative path from which your life can take. And trying to optimize it, getting all hung up over, well, what's the optimum path? What's the right one? I, don't, I want to right. get the good one that does the best. <laughs> getting hung up over that question is the problem itself. <laughs> Do something. Yeah, t- you know, take a Take your best guess and go off with it and be happy with that. And uh, everything turns out really good. Yeah, so it's really a problem to to accept that I I just don't know what is the right way to do. That's that was really hard <laughs> because I I wanted to do the right thing, but I just couldn't figure it out. What is the right thing? And that was stopping me from doing anything at all. <laughs> And it so, also starts, it also puts you in a sense of worry. Okay, I made this decision. I'm not sure if it's right, but I think this is the right choice. And now you're constantly second guessing yourself. You're constantly looking and say, well, was that wrong? Should I have gone the other way? And might this, this problem occur and that problem occur while I'm here? Well, all of that is putting energy into those problems occurring. You see, you start manufacturing barriers and problems and difficulties for yourself. It's better just to say, yeah, I don't know. There's no way to tell which is the best way. I don't have enough information. And then you feel about it. Let your intuition take a shot at it. And you say, well, okay, I'll just go this way. And the point is, if you go that way and you're positive, that way will turn out to be a very positive way. Whereas if you're unsure, both ways will probably turn out to be negative because you're not sure of either one. You're going to go into each one very tentative and very frightened. And you will create problems as you go in either way. Or if you're not frightened, you'll create successes 
in either way. And then you realize it doesn't matter what you do most of the time, as long as it's done out of love and caring and appreciation. And if that's what's driving you, then whether you go right or left at that fork won't make a whole lot of difference. Both will be good. Okay. Great answer. Thank you, Tom. It was a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Coincidence or no coincidence, we were glad you were here, Christian. Well done. Um, all right, Tom, move, moving on. We've got another question from Eric V. He says, uh, Tom, would it be possible to communicate with and learn from non-physical beings in reality frames that are more evolved than ours, reality frames that have progressed much further in terms of science and philosophy? Maybe there are reality frames that have already performed quantum physics experiments similar to the ones that you're designing. Could you, for example, visit their reality frame to see if their big toes correspond to yours? And if this were possible, would that not be a good way to verify and maybe even expand your big toe? Is this possible, and have you ever done so? Well, a little bit of that is possible, but not to the extent that you're talking about. We have to make our own choices and figure our own things out while we're here. Um, it's not like there's, you know, a big cheat sheet, you know, in the sky someplace that you can go get the answers ahead of time to help you make choices. Uh, it doesn't work that way. It's hard to go and bring back, say, technology from some other more advanced, quote unquote, place because you can't interpret the data. You can't understand things that are more than just one step past what you already understand. In other words, if we were to take um, the schematics for building a color television set to who? Um, Almost anybody, I guess, but, you know, to make it more dramatic, to, let's say we would find a group of uh, people living in the Amazon, you know, that have never been connected to the outside world. And we would go and we find these people. And the first thing we do is give them all the schematics, you know, for building a color television set. Well, what can they do with that? Here we are, an advanced society, giving them information. And uh, they can't do anything with it. It doesn't mean anything to them. It's just gibberish. And even if they could interpret all the symbols on the paper, because we also gave them books that would teach them about what those symbols made, and we gave them more information so that they could they could understand better, they still wouldn't be able to interpret it because it's not within their own reality, and it's not just one small step beyond their reality. It's so many big steps beyond their reality that, it becomes unusable information. Well, that's the way it is going out into other reality frames. You can see some things in other reality frames that you don't understand how they work. But if you ask somebody, you still don't understand how they work because you don't understand the explanation. You don't understand the terminology. You don't, uh, you know, you don't have enough background to get it is the problem. So it's very problematic getting advanced information elsewhere. Now, can you go to, uh, let's say, the larger conscious system and say, here, I got a bunch of experiments. How are these things going to work out? Certainly, the larger system knows that. They know the rule set real clearly. They know the rule set and how it's likely to be applied. And they could tell you how those things would work out. But 
you're not going to get that kind of information because you're here to make choices, to learn, to grow, to function here. And it's not about the stuff. It's about your growing up. Now, can you get something from this larger system? And yes, and many people do. Many of the aha moments that scientists get, that writers get, that artists get, comes from, their inspiration comes from the larger consciousness system. They get a connection. Suddenly things make sense. That one piece that, that didn't make, you know, that made all the rest of the pieces not make sense falls into place. But they have to be ready for it. They have to be right on the edge of getting it themselves or they can't get it. But if they are, if you're the artist, you learn to get your intellect out of the art process because <coughs> your intellect will just get in the way. You got to get that intellect out of the art process. It's not, oh, I want to draw a picture of a person just like this. What you want to do is get that intellect out and then you do your art from your intuition, from, from just the way you feel like doing it at that moment is more useful to you as an artist than it is trying to plan everything. If you plan everything, if you're an artist with great, great skill and you can plan every, every detail and it all comes out of your, and all comes out of your intellect, you end up with a photograph, not a piece of art. You see, there's, there's a difference there between a photograph and a piece of art. You may have all the technical skill in the world, but if it all comes out of your intellect, all you do is make a reproduction of something. All right. It's a, you've taken a picture, except you've done it with paint rather than with a camera. But mostly that's a different kind of art. It's not really what we think of as art and painting. That's art and photography. Now it has to do with the setting and the background and the focus. And art in photography is a different kind of thing than art with painting. There's different elements that they work with. So uh, we need to um, get out of our get out of our uh, intellects, and when we do, we get information, and we can use that information if it's something we can we're ready for, something we can understand, and then it has to not be that far away from us, or we can't. We're not ready. If it's too big a jump, we're just not ready. And we don't want to get the system involved in running our life for us because we want have to run our own life. We have to make our own choices. So trying to use the um, the, the larger conscious system is like cliff notes. You know, I don't have to read the book. I can just read the cliff notes. or you know, I don't have to figure it out myself. I can go and they'll tell me what the answers are. You're not going to get that sort of support. Even if they do have the information, unless there's some specific reason why they uh, want you to have it, you're not going to get it just because you asked for it, because you have to make your own choices, live your own life and figure things out for yourself. Otherwise, they're not yours. So all of my theory and all of the things that I've done, I've figured out. Because otherwise, when somebody said, well, Tom, explain that to me. Why did you know, why do you say this? If I didn't figure it out on my own, I'd have to say, I don't know. Somebody told me, you know, I, I went out, of, you know, I'm, I'm out talking to the system and that's what they told me. Well, that's not a very convincing explanation. If you, if you're going to offer it out to people, then you have to be able to back it up with something. 
So the system doesn't put you in that situation. If you can't figure it out, then you don't own it yet. You're not ready for it. So, yes, it's possible. And, yes, people get all sorts of inspiration from it, but they hardly get a set of facts. That's typically not what you get. You get a set of feelings or you get one fact that's the linchpin for maybe a bunch of other ones. Oh, yeah. You know, consciousness. It's a digital information system. So you may get something like that, but you have to then put that all together and and string all the beads yourself. All right, Tom, thank you. Um, the next one is from John Mackay. Mackay, he always has great questions. This one is, uh, Tom, when the future is uncertain, the system takes a random draw from the probability distribution. But since the low entropy option is preferable and the system would like its parts to be successful, how can we be sure that a random draw is always what is happening? Is it not possible that the LCS occasionally chooses a desired outcome? Or in other words, what are your thoughts on what some would call divine intervention? Yes, that is true. When things are, you know, when you're just, you know, when the, when the astronomer looks at the telescope in a place that's never been seen before, you take all the possible things that could be there or you take a random draw from them and that's what the astronomer sees. Okay, the system probably doesn't have a, uh, an issue there with, with, which one of those possibilities gets seen. So that tends, general life tends to be this random draw. But this idea that sometimes the system can interfere with that and it can say, well, I don't really want a random draw in this case. I want this to happen. I want this to be the outcome because it has some reason for doing that. And mostly the reason would be that it is going to be a, uh, on the low entropy path for that to happen. And yes, that does happen. So whether you call that divine intervention or not, um, I guess that we could argue over the terminology, but as far as the function and how it happens, yes, it happens. The, the system does that to us individually. It'll give us things that are impossible, that don't make sense. We'll have experiences, and that's just to help open us up. It wasn't just a, a random draw. It's uh, We get things sometimes to help us grow up. So, yes, there is the divine intervention thing, but it happens in the margins. It's not like everybody lives a life that's divine intervention. Typically, you, you live a very positive life, then the probability that the things that happen to you are positive goes up. In a negative life, the probability the things that happen to you are negative goes up. But yes, there is such a thing. The system does have its way sometimes, its own unique way when that suits it. Next, curing of diseases. Uh, J.R. Stokes, 53. I'd like to ask Tom's opinion on gene editing and the possibility of it curing some diseases in the future. Now, it's my understanding and personal experience that a lot of chronic illnesses are a result of our own poor choices and therefore are good feedback for us to learn from to grow our consciousness. I therefore have reservations about whether new technologies such as gene editing, as they may get in the way of that process by providing a get-out-of-jail-free card, so to speak, for a lot of people who are not learning the lessons of why they got ill in the first place. 
Then I think that as they have not learned through their illness, something else in life that they may manifest through their poor choices will then teach them anyway. Would that be true? Yeah, yeah, that's true. So he answered his own question there. That's true. Um, we have a rule set. The rule set uh, will make more probable certain things happening than other things. So if you happen to have bad genes that create a, a proclivity toward getting Alzheimer's or, you know, getting cancer or whatever it is, there's lots of things that have genetic markers for them. If that happens to be the way the rule set in your particular life and in your particular body operates, then you have a higher probability of those things happening to you because you have this gene that does that and you can go in and fix that. And then that particular things happening to you will be decreased. So the gene therapy is just another step in medicine that helps you uh, beat the odds, if you will. It, it helps you uh, um, have a, a sounder, more uh, you know, more physically fit body if they can go in and fix things that are broken, that aren't functional. But that doesn't—that's not a, a downside. It's not like that's taking away from the system one of its methods by which it could uh, help you grow up. The system will find some other way uh, to uh, help you learn your lessons. So as the rule set and as our science takes away some possibilities, like the possibility, let's say you have an RH factor, and that means that you and another person cannot uh, have children, or if you do, there's a risk that the children will have a problem or that the mother will die or some sort of thing like that, then if the, if the scientists can go in with gene therapy and fix that, well, that's a good thing. Whatever science learns to do and how they can manipulate the rule set, good for us that we'll figure that out and make life better and more secure and healthier for us all. It's not like that's got a bad side. It doesn't really have a bad side. It's wonderful. But the system will have all of the things it needs, all of the ways it needs to help us learn lessons. It's not like that takes one of its sticks away. That takes one of its... uh uh, ways of teaching us away. There's always ways to teach the students. Matter of fact, I think when the students have better health and uh, are generally uh, living a better life, they're cool in the summer and warm in the winter and have plenty of food to eat, it's easier for them to learn to grow up because they're not constantly, you know, fighting with, you know, the nearest alligator or trying to, uh, you know, they're not so absorbed with the basic fundamentals of survival and, and uh, food and shelter that they can spend more time thinking about bigger picture things. So I think that all helps all that we can do with our technology that makes life easier and healthier for us, the better it is for growing up. This, this system will find ways to help us. Thank you, Tom. Um, okay. Michael C writes, Tom, my sister is an extremely religious person and has believed in Christianity almost all of her life. She is now 67, the music director of the small church that she attends, and very involved in all church matters as well. She firmly believes in her heart that she's going to go to heaven when she dies. Now, I was just wondering how her situation might be handled and what it might be like for her when she discovers after her death that she's actually gone to a transitional reality instead of heaven. 
It seems almost certain to me that she'll probably feel very confused and wonder what is going on. Will her situation mainly be solved by her past light slowly fading away like a dream, as I've heard you mention before? Well, that's one of the things that will that will uh, help it. Yes, it will. All those beliefs and things that she had in her intellect will all just fade like a dream. So a lot of that is taken care of in that fading. And that fading sometimes is very quick. Sometimes, you know, when you wake up with a dream and the dream is very clear, sometimes it's only seconds before the dream starts to get fuzzy and more seconds after that before the fuzz grows. And sometimes within a minute or two, you have no idea what that dream was about. That can happen very quickly. Um, and it does happen pretty quickly for most people. But because your, uh, what was it, a sister? Yeah, we were talking about a sister. But because your sister doesn't really know what heaven is like, when your sister gets to a transition reality, she will no doubt believe that she is in heaven and that she's just in the process of finding out what that's like. So there's not going to be any immediate disappointment or immediate anything else. It's going to be like, oh, okay, uh, this must be what heaven's like. And, uh, you know, when she's told to go stand in this line or to go over here or matriculate in, everything's going to be fine. The usual transition reality stuff, she'll just figure that's a part in it. And by the time she might start to wonder where she really is, the dream already would have faded and it's not an issue anymore. So it's not a problem. It's not a big problem. The only problems with transitions that people have is when they come obsessed with something. If they come with a with an obsession of a very particular type and that obsession uh, carries over, that's harder to let go of. That's the dream you wake up in like from a nightmare. You wake up from it and it was so intense that it's hard to let go of it. Even two or three or four or five minutes later, you still remember it. And it may be intense enough that you don't forget it. So those obsessions with intensity sometimes are a little difficult. And those create some problems with people during the transition. But there's not that many people who are that obsessed really about anything. So it's not a big problem. It just happens occasionally. But yes, the typical uh, person who's religious and very sure what's going to happen they're not really all wound up and, and kind of obsessed with what's going to happen. They're maybe only obsessed that it is going to happen, but what it turns out to be is. Okay. Um, question from the Schmetterling on connecting with artists. Uh, Tom, obviously music and paintings and all other kinds of art can evoke or transfer feelings and emotions. We feel what the artist felt or wanted us to feel, but how does that work? When a singer stands before an audience, I would think that people connect to the singer directly. But what if an artist drew a painting or painted a painting hundreds of years ago? Do we connect to the artist's mind in the past within the database? Or does the artwork itself somehow store that information? How can a lifeless material thing like a painting provoke such deep feelings? Well, it's not that we pick up those feelings from the artist. Those deep feelings are the feelings that the viewer brings to it. The viewer looks at that art, and that art then will trigger that viewer's understanding, knowledge, experience. And in those, in that, in the viewer's own 
experience, knowledge, and understandings. It'll mean something. And that's where the the depth of the experience comes from, is the depth of that connection you have with that art. You may look at somebody else's art and walk away and wonder what what the, could they ever have been thinking, you know, or feeling. And it doesn't do anything for you at all. That's just the nature of art. And it's not that the art is is different for different people or that you're connecting to the source of the art. It's whether or not that art resonates with your own with your own being level. And if it resonates only with your intellectual level, then when we find ourselves appreciating the artist's technique and the colors that they used and, you know, all kinds of other attributes that we can say. And we think, wow, yeah, great technique. You know, that's real lifelike or that's this or that's that or the look at the way they used light. But that's all intellectual about your connecting to, you know, the the uh, quality, I guess, or I shouldn't say the quality, the, you know, the ability of the artist to do what they did on a canvas, but that's not really appreciating art. That's appreciating technique, appreciating the artist's skill. But the larger dimension of art is when you look at it and it resonates with your being level. You have experiences, you have knowledge that resonates with that. And that's the depth that art appreciation, that's where it really takes place with. It's not about the technique. It's about what does it say to you? You know, what does it trigger in you? What kind of feelings does that cause in you? What does it cause you to think about? That's art. And the, the viewer brings all of that himself. The art doesn't change. So it doesn't matter whether the artist that did it has been dead a long time. We're not really reading out of the mind of the artist. When the artist is alive and if we're talking with them, we may get some of that too. But that's not the main thing that's going on in appreciating art. It's not getting into the artist's head, it's getting into your own being level and mostly getting out of your own head and getting into your being level is where the appreciation comes from. Right. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, okay. Next, the many and the few from Mark Fraser. Uh, Tom, in the esoteric world, some would call the occult world, there can be found discussions about the many and the few. In the history of the occult, it can be found that with Blavatsky and that era, there were disagreements about whether or not certain information should be released to the public. There were warnings against seeking powers or cities. These powers are known, but are not the objective. Now, I noticed it seems as though many of the people who follow you are seeing seeking out-of-body experiences and likewise experiences over any kind of spiritual learning. I wonder if you have anything to say about the idea of the many and the few. I get a sense that if you're correct about that coming paradigm shift where science acknowledges an other, that it would be kind of like a mass release of information, different than in the past due to the internet, but will the few then become the many? I'd gotten to the understanding that there will likely not be a mass shift in consciousness in any way because each person, each unit, must choose to engage this path or work. But is it possible that what you're suggesting will be equivalent to that mass shift? I suspect it would be a mass shift potential, but preparation would still be essential in order to use that potential. Well, yeah, all of, that is, all of that's true. The person who wrote that uh, has a good understanding of it. You have times when it's, you know, when the, when the truth is welcome, people who are ready for the truth, they welcome the truth when they finally get it and it comes. People who are not ready for the truth don't really want to hear the truth because they're not ready for it. And when they get it, they tend to deny it or they think that you must not know what you're talking about or they find some other way in their own mind to avoid it. So it's true. 
I don't know about the many and the few. That's not would be a that would not be a metaphor of mine. It's not like uh, you can't tell the many, but you can tell the few. Um, some of the some of the, some of the people that you can tell who are ready for things that you can really tell the truth to them. They're ready to hear it. They're ready to learn from it. You know, they may be in the many in some aspects and in the few in other aspects or vice versa. So it's not so much that there's just a few people who really get it and everybody else doesn't. And you have to be careful what you tell all the ones that don't. That's not really the way it works. Individuals are ready to get some things and not ready to get other things. And you can't really divide it out that way. You have to deal with each person as an individual and you have to probe and see what they are ready for, which means you give them a little bit of that truth and see what they do with it. And if they seem to be able to handle it, well, you give them a little bit more and see what they do with that. And eventually, if they really are ready and they seem to be understanding it all, then you can give them all of it, you see. So it's it's more of that sort of thing. And it it's person to person, not group to group, group versus group. So I agree with that. There are things that you don't tell people. There's much that I don't tell people. Um, that's because there is no point trying to tell somebody something they're not ready to process. If you do, you mostly are hurting them more than you're helping them. You're pushing them further away from that particular truth. People have to get ready on their own. So there's a lot of things that it's reasonable to say. And when you're talking like we are to some, so on a public forum that will go out to you know, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people eventually, then you need to be a little careful about how far you go into what subjects that you're talking about, because you don't want to end up hurting more people than you help. But if you help a whole lot more people than you hurt, sometimes that's then worth saying, even if you do hurt a few people, because you've helped a whole lot of people. These are choices that have to be made all the time with every time you speak to somebody particularly if you're speaking publicly because you don't know who's going to be listening to that eventually. So that's true. Now, the thing about can we make massive changes? Well, yes, only if there are a whole lot of people at around the same time who figure things out, who can grow themselves in some way. And I think we're at a time like that. Yes, every individual has to grow themselves. There's no way that you grow somebody else. And yes, you can start fads that lots of people will buy into, but it's not at the being level. It's at some, well, I shouldn't even say that. It might be at the being level, but it, it's not something that is going to last and, and be a permanent change. They're not going to change themselves because of it. It's a fad. It, it, uh, so it serves a need of some sort. But you can provide an environment in which people can grow, an environment that's encouraging to them growing themselves. You can't help them grow in, in any other way. You can't lead them along. You can't tell them information and suddenly they grow up because it's not an intellectual thing. They have to take whatever information you give them and process it down into their being level and really, truly get it and learn it and know it and be it before it's going to change them. But you can give them an environment in which it's easier for them 
to change themselves. That environment would be an environment primarily in which they feel safe, in which they feel potentiality, in which they feel <clears throat> like it's going someplace and there's value to be mined there, a value that's enticing to them, that's encouraging to them. If you give them that kind of an environment, then <clears throat> they will learn about as quickly as they can. That optimizes the probability of their learning, and it optimizes the rate at which they will learn. And when I talk about the uh, scientists telling everybody that uh, it's good science, it's a fact, well, that's what we call facts, that we are indeed a subset of something larger, that we're a, we're a small part of a bigger consciousness system. And once you get that out of the bag, just because you're trying to say that this is a virtual reality, then a lot of other things logically fall out of that, such as that consciousness is the computer and that love is the answer. And those kinds of things will come on their own because they're logical. There's no way to avoid them, even though many people will avoid them, you know, very, you know, go out of their way to avoid them. But a lot of people won't because they make sense. So on top of that, there is a hunger among people for a better way. We're living in a world that is not that hard to see that it's dysfunctional. We look at our lives, we look at our society, we look at their corporations, we look at our governments, and we say there's got to be a better way. There's got to be some other picture, some other viewpoint that is more productive <coughs> than this one. And with that, and some idea of what that viewpoint might be, I think a lot of people may decide to change themselves over a short period of time. Now, that short period of time is probably a couple of decades. It's not like we're going to wake up one morning and everybody will have grown up. It doesn't work that way. But over a couple of decades, we could see a massive shift in attitude toward understanding a bigger picture and being part of a bigger picture. Because you have the the desire, you have the, uh, I, you know, I'd like to see a bigger picture that works better than the picture we've got. You've got that all over. And at the same time, if at the very root of this new concept, science says science supports it, rather than having science being on the opposite side of it, that will be a big encouragement to those people who feel very comfortable about whatever science says is the truth, which is mostly most of us in, in uh, the world today. So, yes, I think there's a possibility there that we can see a lot of individual change, people changing one at a time, individually coming to a bigger picture. And it can be done over a couple of decades. Well, a couple of decades is like nothing. You know, if we look at this in terms of, you know, social change and, and uh, cultural change, you know, a couple of decades are, uh, is an eye blink. So that's very quickly. So when I mention about this happening quickly, I don't, you know, that's what I'm talking about. Quickly over decades, maybe even as quickly as a decade, it'll still take time and it's still individual. But yes, it can. I think it can happen. It's it's funny because um, Oliver's just typed something to me. The Wolf God question fits very well into this, and I was just going through them, and I actually had it up here on the evolution of consciousness and about his writing. 
Um, I'm thinking that's one that you mean, Oliver, so that's what I'm going to actually ask. Uh, Tom, as a novelist, I feel I have a great responsibility to write stories that help people evolve rather than de-evolve the quality of their consciousness. Do you have any suggestions for authors who want to write a story that's helpful for the evolution of consciousness? A general idea from MBT applied to a character's arc is easy to state in broad terms. The overall arc of a character's development in a story should be the journey from fear of some kind to love. But what else could I do in addition to having that trajectory for a character's development. I'm open to any suggestions you may have on any aspect of writing, such as plot structure, character development, theme, motive, setting, pacing, self-revelations the characters have, opponents they may be fighting, authors or movies to study, even whether there are binaural beats that would be helpful to listen to while writing. Tom, any thoughts, any ideas? Any suggestions? Yes, I do have one suggestion, and that is... Any communication that is going to be successful has to start from where the person you're communicating to is and then go forward from that spot. So start out with a, with a story, with an idea, with a, whatever it's the plot, whether it's, you know, all those other elements you mentioned, start out with something that the reader, that uh, the large majority of readers can identify with can connect to start where they are. Okay. So if the average person is full of fear and full of ego and full of stress, well, start with somebody who's full of fear and ego and stress, start from where they are in your story. Let that be the beginning. And from there, develop your story through stages that help that person grow up. And if you do this in ways that, incorporate other people's experience you know you don't do it in fantastical ways like oh you know they were a fearful mess and then one day a part of a meteor fell out of the sky and hit them in the head and now they're you know they're brilliant and they understand all the world and you know that kind of thing doesn't give them anything to latch onto. you're not bringing them along that's a fantastical happening but if they start if you start from where they are and let them progress through the awakening through the learning, through the growing, they will follow that if it's done through experiences that they can relate to that aren't fantastical, then that will show them that it can be done. They'll see characters in books doing it. It'll give them the idea that they could do that too. And if you do that in many varied ways, which may take not only many varied characters within a book, but maybe many varied books, you know, that, uh, show people starting out where most people are and growing up and it's not in a fantastical way. It's through a way of just seeing bigger pictures, seeing relationships, seeing how things are connected. Maybe having a paranormal experience as part of it, that may be too fantastical. But have it, keep it as real as possible, but start where they are. Don't start ahead of them. So in order to help people grow up in your writing, give them examples that they can relate to. Give them events and situations that are events and situations they could see themselves in, which means keep it real and not too fantastical, but have them go through a series of of awarenesses and awakenings and and becomings and show the difference is what that makes in their life and how it affects all of their all of their uh, uh, 
relationships and so on. So I think giving examples is probably the best way you can help and make it as non-scary and as, as identifiable as you can, which means lots of different characters because a lot of different people out there in the world, you know, identify to different things. So everybody's not going to identify to one thing. So lots of characters, lots of books, perhaps, but uh, give people a sense that it can be done, I think would be a major thing. That's the big picture. People don't start because they don't know how to do it. Don't know how to, you know, what they might go through and they can watch your characters go through it and learn from it. It may give them the courage they need to do it themselves. Thanks for that, Tom. Um, talking about evolving of consciousness, uh, in March of this year, we're going to be doing the first immersive experiences at the Chateau in France. Um, some of the attendees that, uh, when we asked them about their dietary requirements, have told us that they would like to eat exactly as you do. Um, I know we've talked about it before, but can you talk a little bit about your, your diet and, and general exercise and what people can do to prepare themselves if they say they are coming to an immersive experience? Okay, the uh, the main things. There's some big things that matter a lot, and it's a lot of little things that don't matter too much. The main things that matter a lot is that when you get in an immersive experience, you want your mind to be as clear as possible. So it would be a good thing if you came, um, say, without, uh, you know, doing things that cause you to lose a grip on your your awareness on your consciousness. So we would not uh, have, uh, you know, we would not have, let's say, uh, alcohol there. And we, I would say not, uh, you know, not to be, uh, not have your cell phone there and using it all the time. Yes, of course, bring your cell phone, but, you know, turn it off once the, once the program starts, don't be aware of other things. Try to just make it an intensive program Get where, get uh, rid of any of the habits you have and the needs that you have for special things. Now, I know this is going to be, this is going to be harder for many Europeans. You know, they drink wine with every meal and, you know, the idea that they're going to drink a glass of water just isn't going to go down very well, to use a metaphor that might have other meanings. Anyway, so, you know, it's not a good time in a, in an intensive like this to start doing something different. If you always have a glass of wine with every meal and that's what you're used to, then it's probably better to continue something like that because otherwise there's liable to be other issues created by the change. If you've always smoked, the idea is that you can't smoke. Well, you can't smoke in the building when we're doing it and we're like doing it all the time. There'll be no breaks for, you know, for smokers. You know, you may have to go outside at the end of the day and smoke your pack, you know, right there in, you know, an hour before you go to bed. But uh, you need to minimize the things that are going to be disruptive to you emotionally and mentally. So if, if, if what you do is you know, something you have a habit of doing, well, if that habit is a problem for other people, well, you may just have to get along without it. And maybe it'd be good to start now learning to, to do without it. You know, but if your habit is something that it's easy to bring along, like every night you sleep with a teddy bear that, you know, makes you feel better, well, bring the teddy bear. You know, don't leave it at home. That's okay. Um, if you have to have wine with a meal, otherwise it will make you grouchy, then, you know, let Keith know that and we will don't want you to get grouchy on that. You know, the thing, the mercies that I've gone to, the ones I've done at TMI, 
they don't stop serving coffee. Well, coffee is one of the, you know, the drugs that, uh, will modifies your, the way you think. And if people were to say, no, we're not going to have any coffee here for a week. Now you would have a whole room full of, of, um, of, um, caffeine addicts who would suddenly have their, their drug removed and probably none of them would go, would get anywhere at all in trying to control their mind because they'd be trying to control their withdrawal symptoms instead of, instead of their consciousness. So we don't want that. So where most people are addicted in a culture, then we'll continue those addictions in the, in the, uh, in the immersive, like coffee. And perhaps in Europe, particularly in France, perhaps wine at dinner or whatever we think. But for the most part, we'd like to keep it as, as, uh, clear headed and unobtrusive things. That's why we'd like the cell phone to stay turned off all the time. We want you to get your head there and keep it there in what we're doing. So we were talking about the immersive and uh, kind of the do's and don't do's and a diet. We want you to have what you're used to as far as your diet goes, because we don't want you having any stomach or digestion you know, distress while you're there. That would not help the situation. So, Present trends need to continue for the most part while you're there. So you're comfortable, you're relaxed, and you can focus. So we don't want anything dramatic. We don't want you to leave what you're used to eating and eat like Tom eats if that's going to cause you to, you know, um, have sugar withdrawals. If it's going to cause you to uh, have other kinds of issues like that, then that's not a good idea unless you work all of that out ahead of time. Now, if you want to be off sugar for three or four months, six months before we get to that point of having this meeting, this intensive, then fine. That would be good. Then you can eat more like Tom eats if you want to do that. But otherwise, I would not suggest it because it will cause you more distress and more difficulty focusing than if you just do everything that's normal. Now, what Tom eats is mostly green smoothies, which is fruit and vegetables. My green smoothies are probably less fruit and more vegetables than most people's green smoothies. But um, that's the kind of the mainstay of it. Everything else can change, comes and goes, depending on what I can find that's organic, uh, depending on what I have time to prepare. So there's a lot of other things there. And making green smoothies at the offsite is just problematical. It would take a blender that was, you know, four feet tall, you know, and uh, two feet in diameter to make green smoothies for, you know, what, 40 people, 50 people. You know, it takes me, a, the, the the making them and the cleanup probably takes me the best part of an hour just making for myself and Pamela. So we can't do it with small blenders because it just takes too long. If you had a giant sized blender, perhaps, but nobody's going to go out and buy, you know, $20,000 worth of professional, you know, kitchen equipment in order to, you know, do this. So the green smooth is probably out because it's no way to mass produce that in time, you know, for, for people. And also running a blender of the size required and of the horsepower required to make a green smoothie. That is mostly vegetables with a little bit of fruit. It takes a big engine and those big engines take a lot of 
or I should say the vessel they take, they make a lot of noise. It's a very noisy thing. So if people in the kitchen were preparing green smoothies while we were doing our work, you not only would hear it all over our building, you'd probably hear it for four or five buildings in either side of us. They'd hear that. They're very, very loud. So in any case, it's not going to happen in these uh, in these meetings that we're going to eat just like Tom. Tom is going to be just like you. He's going to be trying to figure out how he's going to eat and uh, what it is he's going to find there. But mostly I just, you know, I choose among the things that look okay. And I know the, the, the chef in this case is a, is superb. And I know that they have superb ingredients. It'll be as organic as it can possibly be. So I'll do just fine eating with whatever is served. And I suspect the rest of you come with that same attitude. We're not going to be able to eat like we do back home because we're not back home. So uh, we'll well have some excellent food of excellent quality. So just come with the idea you're going to eat pretty much like you always eat, except maybe a little better in the sense that everything will be organic. It's We can get it. You've been very lucky that you've you've had some of the recipes tried out in your tongue. Some of those those soups and stuff. I mean, vegans and vegetarians will be uh, will be all well catered for, and and we'll try and make sure that every dietary requirement is 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 covered um, as much as we can. Okay, back to the questions. Um, Eric V. Uh, Tom, if my understanding of how you define the terms conscious and aware is correct, then consciousness is basically awareness plus free will, and awareness is basically consciousness minus free will. So I have two questions about this. One, does a being that is in the aware but not conscious category, a plant, for example, assuming that plants are aware but not conscious, uh, do they still have their own subjective experiences like we do? And by that, I mean, do they experience qualia like we do? And two, is there a category of neither conscious nor aware things, such as a rock maybe, or is everything aware to some extent? If there is a category of neither, um, then what would that be? Uh, well, there were a lot of questions there. Let me uh, sort them out some. Yes, there is a group of things that are not conscious and not aware, like a rock. And they uh, have to abide by the rule set. So rocks don't routinely roll uphill. You know, uh, water doesn't either. Um, to abide by the rule set. So that will... That uh, kind of takes care of most of their motion is just rule set uh, and also some randomness. Is the earth quake quake? Well, it's when the pressure gets too much to, for, the, for the, uh, the thing that contains it to contain it any longer. So then it has to shift to equalize those pressures a little better. That's when the earthquake quakes, not because it's decided this would be a good time. Now, the larger consciousness system, of course, can make the earthquake anytime it wants because our whole reality is just data in a data stream that we're interpreting as this reality. So you might say in that sense, there's things have consciousness in the sense that the larger consciousness system can make the earthquake or not make the earthquake, can probably make a rock roll downhill or not, as long as there isn't any witness watching a rock just you know start rolling for no good reason then uh, probably the system can do whatever it, it pleases so in that way consciousness controls everything but that's different than saying that everything is conscious 
Rocks are not conscious. Plants appear to be aware of things, but they don't make choices, which is what you were saying with the free will. They don't make choices. They can't choose to do this thing other than that thing. And we're not even so sure about plants these days because, uh, you know, I've read a few things about plants and what they do under the ground rather than above the ground that we don't see that look like they make choices. But we don't know for sure whether those choices are algorithmic or whether they're free will choices. There's a lots of things that make choices that are not free will choices. Okay. An algorithmic choice means that it's, it's hardwired. There's lots of choices that are hardwired that um, are algorithmic in the sense they're if then statements. If this, then that. They're reactive. And there's no intellect. There's no choice. There's no, well, I don't feel like doing, you know, if this, then that. Well, there's this, but I don't feel like doing that. So I'll do something else. That takes free will. But if it's an algorithmic choice, like, you know, our uh, our computer programs, then if this, you will do that because that's the algorithm. That's the way the program's written. And there isn't any free will as to whether or not you do that after this. It's an algorithm. So a lot of things are like that. And we don't know whether these plants are actually making free will choices or whether it's just some sort of rather intricate and complex algorithmic choice because algorithmic choices can be very complex. So you get to the point where it's hard to tell. Now, scientists will probably pursue that and one day they may find tests and ways of deciding whether actually it's free will involved or not. So we don't know necessarily about plants, about all plants, where they fit on this scheme. But we do know the rules, as at least these are the rules that uh, I use, and that is that to be conscious, you have to be aware and you have to make choices. That is, you have to make free will choices, choices that are not algorithmic. Okay, So we can, for now, just because we don't have any facts to the contrary about whether the choices that plant makes are free will choices or algorithmic choices, we can say that plants are in that in-between category of being aware, but not being conscious because they don't make free will choices or they might not make free will choices. Whereas a dog or a cat is aware that it exists, it's aware of its environment, and it does make free will choices. It can decide to do something or not do something. It can decide whether to bark or not bark. It's not algorithmic. It's not something. Show it the stimulus, it always barks. No matter what else is going on, that stimulus, you get that response. That's that's algorithmic. So dogs have free will, obviously. And a lot of animals have free will consciousness. A lot of animals are conscious, even down into the insect world. They do things on purpose for a reason. They're free will choices. And so consciousness is spread kind of far and wide in its various manifestations and capabilities and capacities. It comes in all sorts. So let's say we have a tree and let's say that that tree is aware, but not conscious. If that is the case, and we're just stating that as a premise to work with, 
What is that awareness like? That awareness, yes, would be aware of qualia, of things in its environment. It probably would not be aware, be aware in a very precise way, in a way that perhaps human beings are aware. So it's not just like us, but it would be aware of um, probably broader kinds of things. It might be aware of temperature or humidity, or it might be aware of uh, people in the forest cutting down trees. It might be aware of some of the animals that it kind of is, um, you know, in, in, uh, it shares things with the animals that spread its pollen, the, you know, like the insects or the, the animals that spread its seeds, like burrs get stuck in their fur, things of which it is connected like that. It may have awareness of some of those things. It may have an awareness of time passage. So it's going to have a broader, less um, detailed view because it doesn't have uh, the organs, let's say, that a human has for all the detailed things. You know, we have eyes, ears, you know, we smell, we feel, we have nerves. We have all of this. Well, trees could feel just fine, and, um, you know, that would, would do. They may or may not be very sensitive to acoustic vibrations. Uh, such that if you were talking to a tree, they may not pick up exactly what you were saying in whatever language that was. I wouldn't expect that, but they may pick up your sense of it. They may pick up your, your, uh, your mind part of it. They may pick up the, the attitude, whether that was a nice attitude or whether that was a scary attitude that you had there. So they may pick up the vaguely what's going on around them. So that's how I would see it. They may not appreciate that the sky is blue and the grass is green. They may not see it in that kind of detail. But yes, they'd have their own sense of qualia and their own sense of, of things that just make up their environment, but they wouldn't have any choices about it. It's sort of the way we are when we, when we watch a movie, right? We watch the movie. We, we're aware of what's going on in the movie, but we don't have any choices about what happens in the movie. You know, with the good guy wins or the bad guy wins, you know, it's not our choice. Somebody else took that choice and it's not ours. So they just are observers in that sense, if they're the in-between stage. And then you have the stage that, of course, that's fully conscious, that is uh, both aware and does make choices, does change their environment, does change things, is able to modify uh, their experience through their own choices. So those are the three categories, those that are conscious, those that are only aware, and those that are neither conscious nor aware. They're part of the setting, if you will. They're not plugged into the data stream, the rocks I'm talking about now. You know, they're not plugged into the data stream. They are uh, just part of the setting. In World of Warcraft, there's all sorts of things like that that are just part of the setting. There's buildings and houses and, you know, rocks and trees and Lots of things that are just part of the setting that are not part of the data stream. They don't have a point. They don't, they don't have a part to play in the sense that they make choices, but they do have a part to play in that they're part of a setting. Well, rocks are also mountains. Mountains, you know, make us have to react to them. We have to get over them to get to the other side. You know, that may be difficult. So it's not that they don't have a, uh, anything to do with the the uh, 
with the uh, uh, virtual reality here, they do. There's a lot of things that are not conscious that make us change our minds and how we deal with them. But that's just part of the setting, part of the stage. So I hope that helps. Uh, I think it was Eric that asked that. So there are three categories, and they're pretty distinct from each other. Uh, the one that is the hardest to determine is probably the one in between. You know, is is a is a tree conscious or just aware? Or get down to a level like a clam. You know, we talk about a clam. Well, a clam, is it aware? Is it conscious? Hard to tell. You'd have to give it tests to see whether it could make free will choices. It may be just algorithmic. There's some things that are very difficult. They take some very clever scientists to figure out a test that you could give a clam that would tell you whether or not it had free will. There are probably such tests, but uh, it, they may not be easy to perform. And just teaching it to go through a maze, you know, you can say, well, here's a worm, and you can teach a worm to go through a maze. So now the next, I've it's figured its way through the maze once, and next time I make it go through the maze, it goes through in a quarter of the time so it can learn. Well, algorithmic things can learn, too. You can have learning by algorithm. Hi. Try everything, the things that work, work, and then that's memory. Okay, but it doesn't necessarily mean a free will choice is going on. It just means there's memory there. That memory doesn't have to be memory in consciousness. That memory can be memory in, in uh, you know, cellular memory, if you will, DNA memory, memory in the hardware. So just teaching something to go through a maze doesn't mean that it's necessarily conscious so it's a challenge for biologists to kind of figure out what's conscious and what's not what has memory and what doesn't thank you tom listen i've got i've still got you're right i do have still a handful of questions to ask you um we have gone over because we've had a few problems today um one thing i wanted to touch on before the questions or after the questions is that we have received several emails about your new mbt uh, power breathing video um basically people are a little bit confused as to what it is uh, so what is it and, and why did you create it you, can you give us a little bit of information about that sure i created those a long time ago 20 30 years ago and I created them as a tool to help people develop their ability to use their being level intent to do something. I'll say, well, what can they do with a being level intent? Well, you can use it to modify future probability. You can use it to uh, connect to other data streams, which would mean you are traveling. You call that out of body if you like. Uh, uh, you can use it to heal which is again changing uh, uh future probability you can use it to uh, get yourself warm on a cold day you can actually increase your body heat with it you can uh, you can use it for all sorts of things anything that you can use a you know, that you can use a focused intent to help accomplish then this is just a set of exercises that allows you to get better and better at focusing a being level intent and directing it in the way you want to direct it. So that's really what it's all about. You know, there's nothing magic about it. It's, uh, it's not that, you know, do this exercise and you too will become a wizard. You know, it's not that sort of thing at all. It's just a set of tools for practicing 
and developing your being level intent and how to focus that intent. So that's all. So we run through some exercises with the breath and the way we breathe that um, also can be part of a meditation. It can help people meditate. Uh, so we go through these exercises. And if you work with these exercises, the first, they're going to be very clumsy. It's going to be out of your intellect. Your intellect is going to be 95% of what's going on and your being level is going to be 5% of what's going on. But if you do them and work with them to where they become second nature, to where you've let go of your expectations and all that intellectual stuff, and you're just doing it, then it becomes an exercise at the being level. And it's something that you have to control at the being level. So you have to think at the being level, if you will, get you out of your cognitive ability in your intellect and helps you develop some cognitive ability at your being level. That's maybe another way of saying what I've already said. So that's what it is. Just a set of exercises for learning that like any exercise, the more you do it, the better you get at it. Thanks, Tom. Uh, the MBT Power Breathing video is available from video on uh, Vimeo on demand. Sorry, uh, you can get information on it at mbtevents.com. Tom, you're coughing now. I think we should probably wrap it up today. I mean, we do have a few questions, but I don't think one or two more are going to be it. And I know that Pamela, the one, has put her her, her, her two pence in there. And she's saying to you, like, don't overdo it, Tom. So, I, you know, you're doing it to me today. I, I'm normally at the back of an event doing this to you, but you're doing it to me today. So we, we are going to call it quits there. I'm sorry to anyone who didn't get their questions answered again. We will get round to them when we when we can. Um, we're putting out videos at an alarming rate at the moment. We're filming them uh, against green screen. The people have been enjoying the new shorter videos. Thank you very much for the feedback. Uh, we did talk about the immersive experiences. Although 2018 is all sold out, we do still have a few places left at the cabin in 2019. That is April, May, and September 2019. And we did just recently announce two immersives at Lumley Castle in the United Kingdom, January 2019. So busy year 2018, Tom. Uh, busy year 2019 with the physics experiments, the immersives, everything that's happening. Um, this is going to be a lot of fun. Um, thank you very much, everyone, for joining us. Thank you, Tom. Uh, do you have anything to say in closing? I do have one thing to say. You mentioned these uh, shorter videos, and maybe people don't know about those yet, but Keith, Keith and I and Donna and a couple of other people uh, have uh, been making short videos. And, you know, when Tom Campbell talks, you know, short usually means only three hours. You know, these, these fireside chats are short videos. But that's very intimidating to a lot of people, and they don't have the time for it, and there's no way you can pass that off to somebody else. Oh, here, listen to this three-hour video and tell me what you think. You know, that that doesn't work. So what we're trying to do is put together things that you can share with other people, videos that are 15 minutes at the longest, and some of them are down to one minute. Some of them are just one minute long. Um, if you come if you come across those, well, I think Keith has got most of them out on YouTube now, but if, hopefully you'll come across them other places because that's the point of these. Share them, pass them around. Uh, if there's somebody that you've really been talking to about this, but it's hard, it's hard to you know to bring the subject up. It's really hard to discuss it. It's a difficult subject to discuss, and you could use a little help. Well, a one or two or three minute video may be just the thing 
because I talk in these little videos about basic MBT concepts. So it's basic MBT concepts. Obviously, I can't do more than one concept at a time, and I don't go real deeply into it, but I go deep enough that if you're a beginner, hopefully it will be interesting and make you want to know more, make you want to get more information. So they're meant to be short and interesting. And hopefully that's what they are. And there's going to be a lot more of them coming out because there's been a big demand for something that is shareable as opposed to the big monster videos that we make now. So have fun with them, listen to them and pass them around. Yeah, we certainly encourage people to share them, playlist them, uh, get anyone anyone to, to see them. That's the idea now, especially with the physics experiments. We want people around the world to know all about MBT. So whatever you can do out there, we appreciate your help. Thank you, Tom. Thank you for everyone joining us, Oliver, Justin, as always. And uh, Happy New Year to you all. May 2018 be a really fantastic one. Thank you so much.